Brothers and sisters, having looked in the previous khutbas at the pillars of Islam and the pillars of Iman, and having looked at the moral goals behind them, where these moral goals are implemented in our lives, it produces a moral culture, a culture of morality. A culture which is most concerned about the moral upbringing of its generations, most concerned about the moral policies of its government. Its main concern is a moral concern. Not technology, because technology, though it is good, it's beneficent, beneficial, to sacrifice morality for technology is morally wrong. To sacrifice the moral needs of the society for the sake of advanced technology is morally wrong. And this is what distinguished the Muslim civilization of the past. It wasn't the technology because the early civilization of Arabia had no technology. Technology was in Rome, in Persia, in India, in Africa, but not in Arabia. But what distinguished that early seed of guidance was its moral uprightness. That people stood firm for a moral way of life. And that is the distinguishing characteristic of Islam. It is a moral-based civilization. And that is what the Prophet ﷺ meant when he said, Indeed, I was only sent to perfect for you the highest of moral character traits. This is what it means. So when we look at the problem of the world today, the Muslim world today, one-fifth of the world's uh, peoples, yet having very little impact on the flow of history. Another civilization, Western civilization, dominates, globalizes its culture. Mainly, it's technology, and that technology is presented in an immoral package. So there's technology coming, but the package is immoral. The package 
is immoral. And so our civilization suffers because we want the technology, but we can't separate it from the package. We take the package along with it. The only way forward for Muslims is to go back to that moral foundation. Is to rebuild a moral culture. Islamic morality. That is the only way forward for us. And to do so, on one hand, we need to understand the principles of Islamic morality. And we spoke about that in the pillars of Islam and Iman. That's the foundation which pervades everything else. And on the other hand, we have to erase, we have to remove the obstacles, the obstacles which prevents us from realizing true Islamic culture in our lives, in our civilization. Those obstacles have built up over the generations to the point now where we are unable to recognize to recognize them as true obstacles they have become so much a part of our islam that we cannot distinguish between islam and mislam we think everything that muslims do is islam but there is a lot that Muslims do, which is in fact Mislam. Our challenge is to realize what is not a part of Islam and to remove it. On one hand, it is to apply the true teachings, the Quran and the Sunnah, and the morality which it teaches. And on the other hand, we have to erase, to eliminate, to remove those obstacles to true Islam. So that the Islamic culture of morality can arise again. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Ali Imran, verse 10, summed up that responsibility saying, Kuntum khayra ummatin ukhrijat linnas. Ta'muruna bil ma'roof wa tanhawna anil munkar wa tu'minuna billah. You are the best nation extracted from among humankind because you command the good, you prohibit the evil, and you believe in Allah. You command the good, you prohibit the evil, and you believe in Allah. Commanding the good and prohibiting the evil is establishment of morality. And you believe in Allah, morality based on 
Islam. Because we have people in the world today commanding what they perceive as the good. And prohibiting what they perceive as the evil. But it is not based on belief in Allah. So, it is, it, it, its consequence is evil. Even though it expresses good, says it wants to do good, it means good, but the consequence is evil because that foundation of belief in Allah is missing. And that is what is missing in Western civilization. The core, the most important element in human life is missing. Yes, we do have those civili that civilization, many of the people within it say we believe in Allah. Well, they say God, not Allah. Or if they're Arab, Christians, for example, they will say Allah, yes. But for the rest, they will say we believe in God. But they believe that God was a man. So that belief is not belief in Allah. It's not belief in God. It's not. Because if we can accept that as belief in God, then those people who believe God is a stone or a tree or a planet, we have to accept that as belief in God also. Because what is the difference between a man, an animal, a stone or a planet? They're all created by Allah. So that essential element is missing. Islam offers that element to the world. But to, in order for us to be able to properly present it, we have to ourselves find it. We have to ourselves find it. And to find it, we said, involves two things. One, Applying the knowledge that we know, and of course we have to have knowledge to be able to apply it, and that's why Prophet Muhammad said, Talabul ilmi farida ala kulli Muslim. Seeking knowledge is compulsory for every Muslim. Because the way forward cannot be established without knowledge. Correct knowledge. Based on the Quran and the Sunnah, as it was understood by the generations which lived it, which lived the revelation. And on the other hand, we have to begin a systematic process of dismantling what is known as cultural Islam. I'm talking about Islamic culture. That is the Islamic moral culture. That is on one hand what Prophet Muhammad called to. But on the other hand, we have Satan calling to cultural Islam. Islamic culture and cultural Islam. Cultural Islam, commonly called folk Islam by the missionaries. They always point out, if you want to reach these Muslims, you can't come at them through Islamic culture. 
the fundamentalists who want to practice Islam the way it was originally practiced. It's not going to work. The way to get to them is through folk Islam. What the people practice in the village. What the ignorant people practice. This is the route that we can reach them through. Cultural Islam. Because it doesn't have a proper foundation. It is weak. So it can be dismantled at any time. All you have to do is read the stories of the so-called converts from Islam to Christianity. There are a bunch of them on the internet. If your faith is weak, don't go and read it. But if you know what Islam is, and you really want to see how fake Islam, Mislam, operates, you can see it in the lives of these people who converted to Christianity. They will tell you, I grew up, I'm Muslim, in a Muslim village. And this happened to me, and that happened to me, and the other happened to me, and so on, so on, so on, so on. So I realized that Islam isn't right. It's wrong. And then I met this nice missionary. A lovely man. Who took, a, took a care of me. Who showed me the true love that God has for human beings. And so on and so forth. Now the section that he talks about or she talks about what happened to them while growing up. This happened and that happened and the other happened. If you know Islam, you'll know that this was Mislam. All that was going on in that person's life was, you know, cultural folk Islam. They were victims of folk Islam. Folk is spelled F-O-L-K. If you're not familiar with the word, it means... Islam of the common people. This is what we see. So we know that this is a danger. And Satan is a backer of this kind of Islam. He is there egging, urging the people on to defend this and to stand firm with it. Traditional Islam. I'm sure we're all familiar with some element of it in our home countries. Traditional Islam. The Islam of tradition. Which, from the time that we are children, we are taught. You must respect the tradition. When you question the tradition, you're told, if this was good enough for your father, your grandfather, and your great-grandfather, it should be good enough for you. Don't question the tradition. Accept it. And so you grew up with this traditional commitment to defend and to protect the tradition. Tradition, of course, is completely in opposition to any kind of change. Change is bad. Traditional approach looks at change as bad. That's why when Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, back in the 18th century, 
started a movement calling people to go back to the original practice of Islam as it was known in the time of the Prophet Muhammad he was looked at as an evil man an evil man who wanted to change things change the traditional way of doing things so he was looked at he was labeled as an evil man and his movement was called cynically the Wahhabi movement and the word Wahhabi around the Muslim world came to mean extreme heretic deviant evil Wahhabi and anybody who then called for change let us change this the Quran or the Sunnah doesn't agree with it shouldn't we follow the you want to be a Wahhabi that was the response in complete opposition to any kind of change so when people are invited to the Quran and the Sunnah come let's do what the Quran and Sunnah says the people say that was not the way of our forefathers that was not our tradition we don't do things that way here and actually that was said 1400 years ago same words Allah recorded in the Quran in about five six different places in Surah Al-Ma'idah verse 104 Allah says there وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ تَعَالَوْا إِلَىٰ مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ وَإِلَىٰ الرَّسُولِ قَالُوا حَسْبُنَا مَا وَجَدْنَا عَلَيْهِ أَبَاءَنَا أَوَلَوْ كَانَ أَبَاءُهُمْ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ شَيْئًا وَلَا يَهْتَدُونَ If you tell them, this is Allah speaking to the Prophet If you tell them, come to what Allah has revealed and to the Messenger, they will reply, what we found our parents doing is sufficient for us. What we found our parents doing is sufficient for us. And Allah goes on to say, even though their parents knew nothing, nor were they rightly guided. So that answer, the traditional folk, cultural Islam, is a standard uh, of Satan, it is a standard used by Satan to oppose guidance. It is a source of misguidance. It is used by Satan insidiously to keep people firm in misguidance and to feel themselves right in defending their way defending our forefathers, our customs, and our people. So we see this is a big challenge. It's a big, big challenge in front of us. But the only way forward is to meet that challenge. أَقُولُ قَوْلِ هَذَا وَاسْتَغْفِرُ لِي وَلَكُمْ مُرِسَالِ الْمُسْتَمِينَ مِنْ كُلِّ ذَنْبِ فَاسْتَغْفِرُوا إِنَّهُ هُوَ الْغَفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ
I ask Allah's forgiveness and call on you all to turn to Allah to seek His forgiveness. For indeed, none can forgive our sins besides Allah. Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah. The sources of cultural Islam or traditional Islam are basically four. There are four main sources. One is pre-Islamic practices, things that Muslims used to do before Islam reached their lands. Two, adopted practices, practices which Muslims adopted from other cultures and other societies. Three, religious innovation, which the Prophet ﷺ cursed in every khutbah. And four, factionalism or fanaticism, which is rife amongst Muslims in the various groups, each opposed to the other, ripping apart the ummah. And we'll look at those in more detail in the coming khutbas. But for today, today we want to look at the pre-Islamic practices. Now, to understand how can pre-Islamic practices end up amongst Muslims, we have to understand that Islam as a system is a constructive system. It is not fundamentally a destructive system. Meaning, when Islam came, it didn't destroy the existing civilizations, cancel everything they did, and then came up with something totally new. No. What Islam did was, the things which were done, which were good, Islam affirmed them. Things which were good but distorted, Islam corrected them. Things which people did which were wrong, Islam forbade them. So it was a system which helped, developed, brought about the greatest possible good for the society. Built on what was good, corrected what was wrong, and modified what needed to be modified. And there are many examples that we can see in the life of Prophet Muhammad which illustrates that. The Hajj, for example, was already in practice. Prophet Muhammad did not institute Hajj in Mecca. Hajj was already in practice and established from the time of Prophet Abraham. But in the years that took place between his time, Prophet Ismail, Ismail and Muhammad Sallallahu changes took place. So, people came to make tawaf around the Kaaba, saying, we are coming to you, O Allah, as you created us, naked. So they were walking around the Kaaba, stark naked, men and women. 
We hear your call, O Allah. So Prophet Muhammad corrected that, put clothes on. Allah doesn't ask us to walk around naked. We were born that way, but we don't live that way. And so on and so forth. So Islam corrected. It prohibited. It reformed. When we look now in Muslim cultures, we will find today practices which were in, existent, in existence in those areas before Islam came. And Islam came modifying, correcting, prohibiting, etc. But some of these practices slipped in and they weren't corrected. Because Islam had this easy attitude towards what was called orf, the common custom of the people. Where it didn't seem to oppose Islamic teachings, it allowed it. So, through this flexibility, some practices were not corrected in the outerlying parts of the Muslim empire, the Muslim state. Close in the, to the center, it was eradicated. These things were cleared away. But as Islam spread further and further, generations went, the strength of the message became somewhat diluted. Those who carried it out of Arabia in the early generation were firm, clear. Those who carried it further in later generations were not as clear. And in the later, later generations it became somewhat dubious. So these things crept in. So we find, for example, just as an example, in the Indo-Pakistani subcontinent, the practice of getting married in a red wedding dress. Red. Now, Islam doesn't have any problem with any color. You want to marry in the colors of the rainbow, you can do it. You know. No problem. However, when the society says you must get married in this color, we have a problem. Because now you're making obligatory on people something which Islam didn't make obligatory. So we have to look to see why is it? Why is it people are insisting that you must get married in red? And then we look at the Hindus and we see their women marrying in red. And we realize that's where it came from from Hindu practice. That was the norm amongst the Hindus, to get married in red. Muslims converted to Islam, and they brought red along with them. So it became an obligation. People might say, okay, big deal. <laughs> red dress, green dress, what does it matter really? That might not seem like much. Similarly, in other parts of the Muslim world today, we find uh, 
people marrying in the white dress in Lebanon, Syria, Egypt. You get married, women marry in white dresses. And again, we said, no problem, Islam. It can be white, green, blue, black, any color you want. But when it becomes a cultural imposition, you must get married in white, then we have to say, what's happening here? What's happening here? And we see that this is the tradition amongst Christians. It is their tradition to wear white, indicating purity and virginity and these other types of things. So they insist on it. So those people who came into Islam in these areas brought the white dress along with them. And again, as people will say, this is something minor, nothing really big. But if we progress, if we progress forward to other similar customs, and we have today in Egypt, Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia, in that region, what has come to be a big cause amongst the feminists in the world today do all kinds of programs about it and show what Muslims do to their women they raise the banner of FGM FGM what is that female genital mutilation Muslims cut up the private parts of their women. Mutilation. And it's true. Muslims in this part of the world do it. Also, so do the Christians. Christians in Egypt, Christians in Ethiopia, Christians in Sudan, they all do it. In Kenya, they're doing it. So it's really not a Muslim thing, but it's associated with Muslims. And it's only in that part of the Muslim world. The rest of the Muslim world is not involved in this. But it is associated with Muslims. And it is what is called Al-Khitan Al-Fir'auni, the Pharaonic circumcision. It existed way before Islam. But the consequence what happens to the lives of women who undergo this mutilation and it becomes mutilation. A number of them die every year from it. Infections, all kinds of horrible things happen to them as a result of it. It is an evil, but it's attributed now to Muslims. And there's harm in the Muslim society from it. That is one level. Take it up another level. In India, the common practice when people marry is to give dowry to the men. Mahar is given by the family of the women to the men. Right? The opposite. This was Christian tradition also. 
in Europe, that's how it was done. Women were looked at as a liability. You had to pay off the men to take them off your hands. Okay? This was not the Islamic point of view. So it was a common practice amongst Indians. What was the result of that practice? The result of that practice is that when a man wants to get his daughter married, he offers the young man all kinds of things, a car, a big television, nice house, and all kinds of things to win him over to take his daughter. And what happens after they get married is that the father is not able to fulfill all of his promises. So the husband, he is putting pressure on his wife. Where's the stuff your father promised? Where is it? Where's the car? Where's the flat screen plasma TV? It's not coming. The wife says, you know, he promised. I, I don't know. I, you better get it. You better make him bring it. And he starts to put pressure on her. And eventually, he, because he's not coming, the only way out of this thing, okay, just get rid of her. How? He and his mother catch her in the kitchen. They pour kerosene over her and set her on fire. Thousands of Indian women are burnt alive every year. What they call bride burnings. This is the evil consequence of this way. The government has prohibited it. The Indian government, recognizing the evil of it, has prohibited this dowry system. Well, Muslims of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, in the newspapers, I read an article. It said, woman burnt to death. Dhaka, a greedy husband, burnt to death his young wife at Shikpara in the city following a feud over dowry, police said. I read that, I said, oh, another case of Hindus, because you got Hindus in Bangladesh, burning their rights. But then I went on, it said, Zia, oh, Zahir Mia. Mia is a kind of strange name, but Zahir, this is the name Muslims carry. I said, what? Zahir Mia poured kerosene over the body of his wife, Shahnaz, Astaghfirullah, 20 years old, and set her on fire on Sunday. She died in Dhaka Medical College Hospital yesterday. Another article. Domestic violence on the rise in Pakistan. At least 300 women are burnt to death every year. Muslim women. It's a long article. Time is short. But it's saying the same thing. Muslim women burn to death every year over dowry. So this thing has become an evil this thing is a great evil taking human lives, the lives of our women. And just so that we don't think, oh, Dr. Bilal is always focusing on us Indians and Pakistanis, 
In southern Egypt, I read an article. It said, son held for killing mother. In Qina, Egypt, a 22-year-old son beheaded and dismembered his widowed mother when he found out that she had secretly remarried, breaking with tradition in southern Egypt. The police here said yesterday, Salah Ahmed Hassan, helped by one of his uncles, forced Samira Salam, 35 years old, into the village cemetery in Naqada, a hamlet north of the southern resort of Luxor, where they strangled, beheaded, and dismembered the woman, police said. They said the woman was pregnant. Hassan and Samira's brother were detained for questioning and admitted their crime. What? What was the basis of this? This young man, 22 years old, his mother was 35 years old. His mother was 35 years old. Meaning, she got married when she was 13 years old. No problem. Islam is fine with that. So her husband dies and she's 35. She's still a young woman. But in southern Egypt, if your husband dies, don't think about getting remarried. Don't think about it. This is the consequence. You will be killed by the society. Your brother, your son will murder you. Why? Where did this come from? The origin of this is an ancient Egyptian myth concerning the goddess Isis. According to the myth, Seth desired his sister, Isis, so much so that he killed her husband, Osiris, in order to marry her. However, Isis refused to marry Seth and hid her son Horus until he came of age and revenged his father's death by killing his uncle Seth. The cult of Isis began in Lower Egypt and spread throughout the whole country. Isis, Osiris, Seth. What does this have to do with Islam? This is an ancient pagan set of beliefs affecting the Muslims of southern Egypt. So much so that they murder their women because they seek to get married. This is what is in front of us today. These are only a few examples just to make it real because I, I may speak about it and say, yeah, yeah. But we need to realize that this is a real threat in our Muslim societies today and we have to eradicate it we have to re-establish Islam by removing these things correcting it that is the only way forward and Prophet Muhammad he was the example of change one who came and reformed the culture an evil culture with good of Saudi Arabia. A culture which buried its children, girls, alive. 
So there was that kind of evil existent. But Islam came and prohibited these things. And corrected and reformed and made that change. And that's why Allah calls us in the Quran saying, Inna Allah wa malaikatuhu yusalluna ala nabi. Ya ayyuhalladhina amunu sallu alayhi wa sallimu taslima. And that's why we ask Allah's peace and blessings on the Prophet Muhammad because he was the example of change, of reformation, the guide for us to reform ourselves and our societies, to bring them back to that moral ideal. And I ask Allah to give us the courage to take on this huge responsibility of reforming our societies and ourselves. Ask Allah to help us to find our way back to true Islam and to eradicate the false practices and customs in our societies. Ask Allah to keep our hearts dedicated to this religion and to keep our faith growing till we die and to make the last breath that we take a breath of faith and to leave this life in true belief. Ameen. The world's first tuition-free degree, BA in Islamic Studies. Access the knowledge, any place, anytime, anywhere. It just doesn't get any easier than that. Classes, texts, assignments, completely online. Set your own schedule for the semester. No overseas travel required for the exams. Subjects taught by qualified English-speaking scholars. Weekly live sessions in virtual classrooms. With curricula based on those in El Medina University in Saudi Arabia, El Azhar University in Cairo, and other reputable institutions around the world. Why wait any longer? You pay just a symbolic registration fee and are ready to begin the adventure of higher education. The most diverse student body of any university in the world. 130,000 plus registered students from 217 countries. Log in to the website for more details. www.islamiconlineuniversity.com